Well, uh, this morning we are starting uh, a new sermon series, uh, a new sermon series focused on one of Jesus's most prominent teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's kind of like Jesus's inaugural address where he lays out his vision for what life looks like in the kingdom of heaven. It's not just a life that's meant for some time down the road to come, but it's a life that Jesus invites us to have and experience here and now. The kind of life that Jesus says that he came to give us, that he came to offer us. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that I have come. So you might have life, and you might have it to the full, that you might have abundant life, a life that is fulfilled. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of spells out what that fulfilled life might look like. What it might look like for us to pursue that fulfilled life here and now. It's, it's a life that we're invited to experience as we allow God to reign within our lives. And so in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is offering us instructions for a fulfilled life. So we're going to start uh, with uh, the first section here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be uh, studying through this throughout the summer and into the fall a little bit uh, because it's just so full of good stuff, of great teaching straight from Jesus. But I'll invite you to open up in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses together, a section that's oftentimes called the Beatitudes. So I invite us to hear the word of the Lord. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you, when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned, this passage of scripture is oftentimes called uh, the Beatitude. Uh, it's because each Beatitude begins with the Greek word makarios. Uh, which is usually translated uh, into blessed or happy. I think the Latin of it is uh, where we get the beatitude language from. But the original Greek uh, is translated with this either uh, blessed or depending on what version of scripture you read, it'll say happy are those. Uh, most Bibles tend to use the word blessed because, because I think what Jesus is offering us, what he's teaching us here goes a little bit deeper than just Happiness. It goes a little bit beyond just what we might consider to be happy. And so rather than some shallow happiness based on what's in front of us, Jesus is offering us a more fulfilled life in him. He's, he's offering to us a way of life. And it's a way of life that runs counter to the world's view of what's going to make us happy. So most scriptures will say blessed because they don't want us to become confused with the things of this world that we tend to look to that'll make us happy. I wonder how many times we've said or thought, you know, I will be happy when, 
you know, and then you kind of fill in that blank. I'll be happy when. I wonder how we might fill that blank in now. I mean, when, when you're younger, uh, perhaps you might say, I'm going to be happy when summer comes and I don't have to go to school. Uh, I think there's probably a few cheers here this morning for that. Um, I'll be happy you know, when I really get that toy that I want or that game that I want or whatever else it is. I'll, I'll be happy when I grow up and I finally get out of my house. Like that was, that was me as a teenager. I can't wait to get out of here, then I'll be happy. Uh, I'll be happy when I, when I just meet the right person. And when I fall in love and when I get married, then I'll be happy. You know, as you get older, uh, maybe it becomes, you know, I'll be happy whenever I get the toy that I want. Only you know, grown-up toys are a little bit more expensive than kids' toys. Now, I'll, I'll be happy when I get that new car that I've been wanting. I'll be happy when I finally get that promotion that I deserve. I'll be happy when I have enough money to travel and go and visit the places that I want. I'll be happy when I finally lose some weight. I'll, I'll be happy when I can finally retire and just be done. And, and to some extent, sometimes people hit that point in life... I'll be happy when they finally lay me to rest and I can just finally be at peace. We have lots of things that we fill the blank in with. This is uh, what the world tends to offer us as places where we might find happiness. But Jesus is telling us there's, there's something different. There's something more. There's something greater than these material things that we could hold on to. See, I, I recently saw a movie where one of the characters was asked throughout the movie, you know, are you happy? Uh, this character happened to be a superhero uh, who had just helped save the world, but, uh, but the person that he loves is marrying someone else. And so there's this kind of question, this tension that's there, you know, are, are you happy? And in the movie, he's trying to save the world from another person who has these kind of superpowers, uh, who's trying to find an alternate world where she can be with children that she's lost in this world. And both the superhero and the anti-hero have this concept that if they could only have this one thing in their life, if I could only have this person that I loved, then I'd be happy. Or or for the anti-hero, if I could only have my children that I lost, uh, then I would be happy. By the end of the movie, though, after they've kind of torn apart this world and a few others, uh, they realize that whatever that thing is that they think would make them happy ultimately isn't what would make them happy. The happiness becomes something that runs deeper than just the things that we see and grasp, the things that we can hold on to. And I think that's in part what Jesus is also teaching us in the Beatitudes. It's not based on what the world says will make us happy. It's not based on things, on riches, on strength, on winning, on material possessions. Instead, it's found within within our character, within the things that we seek after, with what we desire. And so we're going to take a a closer look at each of these Beatitudes, just kind of real quick, and see how they might speak to us today. Jesus begins, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's one of those things that kind of runs counter just immediately off the bat to what we think of. You know, our, our world might say, blessed is the person who's rich, who has a, a lot of things, right? That's what it means to be blessed. Jesus offers something different. Now, there's two words for poor in the Greek language. One refers to those who work hard to make a living but never quite have enough. And the other refers to people who are totally destitute, without anything, The first uh, group has nothing luxurious. The latter have nothing at all. Uh, What Jesus is talking about in this beatitude is, is more of the latter. Whether physically or spiritually impoverished, he's saying that God's richest blessings fall upon those who are absolutely and totally dependent 
upon God and God alone. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who know that they have nothing else to turn to, and so they turn their hearts completely towards God. I've had the privilege to visit uh, churches in Cuba on a couple of different occasions. Uh, and the people in Cuba have very little uh, material possessions. If, you, uh, if you've been, maybe you've been to the resort area, and those areas I hear are kind of nice. But if you make it to where the people are, they have very little. At, at one church that we visited, the pastor, uh, we visited the pastor in his house, and they didn't have a toilet seat on the toilet. And it's something that they would have never bought for themselves either because any kind of income money that they might have is either going towards food or clothes or shoes or something like that. And so when we were there, my group just bought one because we have extra. We come from a land of abundance. Uh, But what the people in Cuba lacked in material goods, they made up for with a spiritual passion. I mean, the people of the church in Cuba have a a faith that could move mountains because they have nothing else to depend on but God. If something breaks, they can't go buy a new one, so they pray about it. They lay hands on it, and they pray in Jesus' name for the things around them to work. They have nothing else that they could rely on, that they can depend on other than God. And so their happiness can't be based on the things that they acquire, the things that they could hold on to, because they have no ability for material wealth. They seek God first and foremost. They place him in front of them in all that they do, and they find joy because they're truly open to him. And and every time I've been and I've come back, like I come back a little bit more excitement. I I come back wanting to have that kind of faith where I'm truly, you know, poor in spirit, trusting and relying not on the things that I can do with my hands, not on what I can do within myself, but trusting fully in God. Jesus promises That if we have that kind of approach within life, we will see the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this kind of takes on two uh, kind of connotations. First, it's a promise to us in the midst of our grief that we're not alone. That God shows up and he comforts us. That he meets us in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our loss. It, It kind of echoes the promise that comes in Psalm 34, 18, where it says, don't despair. You shall be comforted. Uh, it's, uh, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's an echo of that promise from the Psalms that God is near when our hearts are broken, that his comforting presence surrounds us in the midst of our heartache. But there's another part to it that goes beyond that. It also echoes the words of the book of Isaiah, where a word of comfort is spoken to a people who have been in exile, a people who've experienced the brokenness of the world, the pain that's been caused by their sin and the sin of others. That's something that I think that many of us can relate to as we look around the world uh, around us. We see a world that's, that's filled with hurt, a world that's filled with brokenness because of our sin, because of the sin of the people around us. It's a Jesus promises us here that in the midst of our mourning at the way that the world is, that God comes to us and he offers us comfort. This is what we see taking place in the life of Jesus, right? That Jesus came into the midst of our brokenness to to comfort us, to heal us, to strengthen us. Jesus came to forgive us of our sins, to set us free from the sins that entangle us, and to begin healing the damage that's been done within our own lives because of our sin and to heal the damage in the world around us. Because of sin. This promise of comfort is that though the world may not be as it should be, that God has come and that he's setting things right. 
And so rather than becoming distraught or filled with worry over the state of the world, a person of faith can find comfort in the promise that God is, is on the move. can find comfort trusting that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, that Christ will come again, that God is setting things right. Jesus goes on in his Beatitudes and he says, Blessed are the meek. Or depending on the translation you might have, it may say, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. And this is one of those beatitudes that just kind of sets the world upside down. So the world around us seems to base itself on the notion that, that might makes right, right. The way to change things is to have power. We invest so much energy. We take on so much anxiety trying to force our way upon things. And oftentimes, whenever we're, we're uh, trying to work towards power and we're trying to, to figure out how we can have all of these things in front of us, it oftentimes gets displayed in outright meanness towards others, uh, a contempt for people who don't see things the way that we do. But Jesus approaches things in a much different way. The, the meekness of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus isn't something that's passive. It's not a, a sit back and do nothing. But it's rather a kind of inner confidence that enables him not to be overly anxious about the things that are around him. Because he trusts that God is with him. It's a gentleness, it's a confidence that comes not from having power over others, not from exercising his own might, but it comes solely from trusting in God to be with him. With great trust in God, we know that with God's help, we will prevail. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what's good and what's true, but we do so with an ultimate dependence that the final outcome isn't based on our own power. It's not based on my own might, my own strength, but it's by the spirit of the Lord. We can approach others with a humbleness of heart, truly loving and desiring their good as we entrust it into God's hands, trusting that, that I don't got to fix it. I don't got to fix somebody else. I don't got to make it right. I can allow God to do that work while I do the good that God calls me to. I can let go of the anxieties. I can stop trying to control every little thing around me. I can stay humble in heart and let God do his work. Jesus then goes on and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If meekness is a hard concept for us to stomach, this beatitude might be a little bit harder because most of us aren't really accustomed to what it means to be hungry or thirsty. Now, when we're hungry, we eat. When we're thirsty, we drink something. We, we refrigerate water to cool it and food to preserve it. We shop in supermarkets that are stacked high with food from all over the world. Anything that you can think of and imagine. And even if they run out of one thing, they've got 50 other things that are right next to it. In restaurants, we order food one minute, we receive it the next. And we're less likely to express wonder at this abundance than we are to express frustration when the system fails to work perfectly. If somebody asks us if we're hungry, they don't mean like, are you really experiencing hunger? I mean, are you sufficiently hungry to eat if I put food on the table? You know, we we eat some food if I make it. But to a person who's truly hungry or thirsty, right, they can think of very little other than 
where they're going to get their food, where they might find something to drink. The person who's truly hungry and thirsty becomes totally focused upon finding or getting that thing it is that they need to eat or drink. So as Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's calling us to be laser focused on doing what is right in God's eyes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for personal holiness. Blessed are those who ache to live in a world that's filled with people who have right relationships, right relationships with God and right relationships with others. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to bring about healing in the midst of broken relationships. Jesus promises that we find fulfillment, that we find happiness when we move from putting ourselves first, when we move away from putting our wants and desires first, and instead we become laser-focused on what God desires, what God wants, when we listen for his voice to call and to lead us and to guide us. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's one of those points in scripture that, you know, we, we kind of brush off, but actually if we read a lot more, it, it kind of becomes clear that there's this attachment to the mercy, the forgiveness that we offer, and the mercy and the forgiveness that we receive. Uh, the way that we treat others is oftentimes the way that we can expect to be treated. Uh, it's one of the things that we even pray when we pray the, the Lord's Prayer. And we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The, the extent of the forgiveness we receive depends on how forgiving you are. This is the same with mercy. Uh, only those who show mercy can expect mercy in return. But if it's true that the merciful re- will receive mercy, it's also true that those who have received mercy are more inclined to give mercy. If you've experienced mercy within your life. You become a little bit more empathetic towards others. You become more able to show mercy towards others. In that sense, mercy is something that's cyclical. You receive it and you give it. You receive it and you give it. So the question is, how does this kind of mercy cycle become jump-started? This is the good news of what God has already done for us. The good news of what Jesus coming to earth is for us. That God proved his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That when we were enemies of God, God showed mercy towards us. That Jesus came and he laid down his life to offer forgiveness of our sins, to offer healing in the midst of our brokenness. He showed mercy first. And so our being merciful Our being a people who show mercy flows from our understanding of how much mercy God has shown us. If you're struggling to forgive, if you're struggling to offer mercy to others, I'd invite you to just to take some time to think and to pray about, reflect on how merciful God has been towards you. If if you're struggling to be able to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness to people around you, think about Meditate on, pray on, give thanks for the mercy that God has shown you. It's hard because I think most of the time we feel like we're we're pretty good people. So it might not have been that hard for God to forgive me. Not as hard as it was to forgive, you know, that, that other person over there. But if we think about what our sin does and how it, no matter how big or small we might think it is, 
that it does damage to that relationship and what damage to a relationship looks like and that God took the first step to come towards us and to offer us his mercy. That God took the initiative and he showed up in our lives and we didn't even care to be in relationship with him and he invited us and he said, hey, I, I know you and I see you and yeah, you've done some hurtful things, but I love you anyways. When he showed mercy towards us, think about, reflect on, meditate on that and let that be the kind of mercy that then flows out of us. Jesus uh, continues in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hmm. Purity is one of those words that kind of speaks for itself. Uh, We think about things that are pure. Uh, Pure metals don't contain alloys. Pure water is free of any contaminants. Pure motives are untainted by self-interest. Out of all the Beatitudes, this might be the one that might be most difficult to attain. Because if we're honest, there's a seldom a time when our motives are completely free of self-interest. Even the good that we do oftentimes has a little bit of hint of that self-interest within it. Even in our seeking God, a lot of times our seeking God is trying to, to obtain something out of it, to, to get something from God. I'm going to God because I, I need something. The pure heart, though... The pure heart seeks God not because of what it can receive, but because of who God is and what God has already done. The pure heart seeks God just in gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has already done for us. When when we desire to know God, when we're truly looking for Jesus, worshiping Jesus, then there's this promise that God meets us there. Our happiness, our fulfillment isn't something that we go to God seeking But it comes as a byproduct of that connection and that relationship with him. When our hearts are pure, when our intentions are pure, we see God. We don't seek God to become happy. But happiness is thrown in because we approach God with a heart of gratitude for what God has already done for us. And Jesus tells us next, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I think it's important to note here that that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who avoid conflict. I mean, sometimes we think that that's what peace is. I'm just not going to deal with it. I don't want to, that's too hard. I'll just leave it alone. And so we're at peace. But there's still that conflict. There's still that tension there. It's also probably worthwhile to say that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who create conflict. (laughs) That's, That's also not part of what he's calling us to. Rather, he says, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are those who do the hard work, who have the hard conversations for the good of everyone. See, peace isn't passive. Uh, It's an active, vital relationship of people working together for the common good. Uh, To seek peace isn't to minimize our differences, but it's to take each other seriously. To seek God's will over our individual wants and desires. Peacemakers are those who are willing to take initiative, to to make the first move, to enter into the midst of conflict for the sake of finding resolution, for the sake of restoring a friendship. I mean, I don't have to tell you that this takes courage. Because when there's conflict, most of us avoid it like the plague. Whether it's with our friends, our neighbors, within our own houses, we'd rather just move on and not deal with it. But a peacemaker is one who enters into the fray with the confidence of God's peace within, who 
who seeks to find a way forward for everyone. And Jesus concludes the Beatitudes saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's a lot of talk about what persecution looks like and depending on what kind of uh, Facebook groups and social media groups you might be a part of, you might hear different things about what persecution is. I, I don't think there's any way to compare maybe some of the discomforts and polite ridicule that we experience as Christians to the persecutions of the early church. The persecutions of the early church is Christians uh, being burned at the stake, thrown to the lions, tortured in unspeakable ways. And and hopefully that will never be something that we encounter uh, within our own lives. But I think we do see a world around us where traditional Christian values are kind of out of the mainstream. Where traditional Christian values can be uh, considered uh, bigoted or hateful uh, or even termed as oppressors. Jesus says that, Whenever we are doing what is right, when we're doing our best to pursue the way of life that he calls us to, not to to worry about those kinds of things, that we have a greater promise that is for us, the kingdom of heaven in our midst. It doesn't mean that when we face some sort of persecution or when somebody says something that, that we don't like because of our faith in Christ, that we go on the offensive There's still this call within the Beatitudes to be gentle, to be pure in heart, to be merciful, and to be forgiving. Rather, we can endure whatever kind of opposition we might face within life because we can trust that God will settle all things. That God is going to work it out in the end. It's something the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a call for the person who is in Christ, regardless of what they might face or endure, regardless of what might be said, to continue to pursue the way of love, to continue to pursue the way of Christ, the way that uh, Jesus says, I could call down thousands of angels and I could come and overtake this entire place. He would have never had to go to the cross, but instead Jesus says, I willingly, I gladly lay down my life for the sake of others. It's a call to to sacrifice our own desires and our own wants for those around us. If we're doing what is right, God will bless it. If we experience some kind of persecution, uh, if it's because of righteousness, Jesus promises us that we will see the kingdom of heaven in our midst. Rather than worry or becoming bitter, Jesus says, rejoice, knowing that great is your reward in heaven. These, these beatitudes, these teachings that Jesus offers to us are, are promises. The, the promises to us of the way that leads to a fulfilled life now. That if we embody this way of peacemaking, of being merciful, of being pure in heart, of seeking first the kingdom of heaven Jesus says it will be added unto us, that we will experience that life here and now and even more so in the world to come. 
There are promises that when the Lord is your strength and not the things of this world, when you share the pain of others, even those you might not know personally, when you humbly put on the yoke of Christ and follow his spirit and faithful obedience, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness as if your life depended on it, when you're as merciful and forgiving of others as God is as merciful and forgiving of you, when your thoughts and motives are free and pure of self-interest, when you use your strengths and resources to affect peace and reconciliation, when you're willing to endure personal attacks for the sake of the gospel, then, then you will enjoy the fullness of God's favor. Then you will taste the fruits of eternal life, not just in the life to come, but in the life that we're living here and now. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have given yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that you've offered us life and life abundant, and that you are showing us the way. I pray that we might take heed of your word, that we might live in light of your word, that we might follow Christ in his way, in his life, that it might become ours, that others might see and know and give thanks for the good that you're doing among us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.